Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Macroeconomically, you got to think that as we create more and more consumer surplus, as the cost of things come down, opportunity for win-wins has to grow. And as we have an economy, the single economic fact that actually scared me the most is the decline in dynamism. Because as we have an economy where inventors can get paid and think something can be made out of nothing, which happens every day in the United States, it's kind of the business model of the nation, I guess I just philosophically believe that we should exhaust the win-wins before we fight each other for the rest. Maybe it's just, I think what I'm telling you is actually, I don't know that I have an argument for why it's more possible. I have a philosophy that it's better for all of us no matter what. Okay, uh, it is almost that time, people. It's December 30th. It's almost the new year, so I hope you have your New Year's resolutions ready. We thought we would end the year on the note that we've struck the entire year, Marshall, which is trying to figure out what the hell is going on with cool people from all across different business, politics, and more. So who do we talk to today? Yeah, we spoke with Roy Bahat, who is the head of Bloomberg Beta. We've got a really interesting realignment uh, crossover here. So Roy is a venture capitalist, aka part of the audience is super jazzed, other part isn't. To make it even more complicated, he is a Bloomberg Beta, which where the major LP is Michael Bloomberg. At the same time, he is also a person who is deeply interested in democratic socialism, worker power, organizing. So we have a really wide-ranging conversation beyond just the typical, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Work is going to be different in the future. What does UBI look like? We're going to hit a lot of different points here, a lot of interesting things, and it gets at what we're going to focus on more in the new year, which is how are different people who look at society through different lenses approaching all these different challenges. So we would definitely appreciate someone sending in a good recommendation for someone who's more on the labor side of things to talk about these exact subjects. A lot of great things there, and this will make another great episode. Episode. Quick things because we're getting into the new year. Number one, check out the Substack. First issue of the new year is going to come out next week on Thursday. We've got the uh, need for everyone to give us a quick review on Apple if you haven't already. Some of how you've had a good time this year. Finally, thank you to Lincoln Network Network for supporting our work. See you next year. Roy Bahat, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you. Good to speak with you, Roy. Yeah, you too. Roy, the first time we spoke, we had a bit of an interesting interaction, which did not go the direction I thought it was going to go. You'd listened to an episode of The Realignment. That's happened started. to me before. You may not be shocked. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that people are going to almost certainly hear that. And you said... Your and my politics weren't necessarily in alignment. And I started to do my normal shtick, which was, no, no, like, I know we started at a center-right think tank, but I'm kind of a centrist. And you were just like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm actually much more left than you. I'm actually deeply interested in the ideas behind democratic socialism. I'm interested in labor movements and have, like, a broader thought about the future of work as relates to that. Now, everything I just said is pretty straightforward considering the spaces we speak in, but you're also a venture capitalist. You've worked in media. 
Michael Bloomberg, all of those phrases. So you put that all together and we have a semi-incoherent picture of how you found yourself positioned the way you are today. So I would love for you just to introduce yourself because I think the second we talk about labor and the words venture capital come on, half the audience will start rioting. So I'm really giving you a chance to set things up with proper context. What's that was that old line about advertising? It's like half my money is wasted. I just don't know which half. It's yeah. sort of, you know, I, mean, I am a professional capitalist. Uh, it is literally in my job title. And so uh, half the audience will riot, but we don't know which half. You also forgot that uh, to not forgot. Uh, I, 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 it is also relevant that I worked for Rupert Murdoch before doing this. And I think that one of the reasons I felt that way and I don't so much remember declaring it as asking you is that my own politics are pretty hard to classify. Like I feel, I often feel at home in extremely libertarian communities in some ways where I'm a huge believer in the power of human freedom and extremely left-leaning communities in other ways where, you know, one of the reasons I believe, for example, in a guaranteed income is that I think it is an enabler of freedom and that if you are stuck in a poverty trap, it's very hard to meaningfully participate freely in our society. And so I would say that in my own self-introduction, I struggle to characterize other than that I just ask that people listen to the arguments um, that I make and the questions that I have more than the arguments that I make. Because yeah, I do believe, for example, that in our country we need much more worker power and as much as I believe we need more worker organization, I also believe we need very different worker organization. And I've had founders refuse to work with us because of my views. And I've had labor organizers refuse to talk to me because I'm a professional capitalist. And you know, I try hard to listen to the best of various views without identifying cleanly with any one tribe. Roy, you said there that people should listen to the questions that you ask. What questions are you asking? Well, the single biggest question that I have right now, so we've, you know, I'll, I'll give my journey on how I got here. I've been working on in various domains for a long time. I worked in government. I worked, you know, in, uh, in management consulting for a big media company. I started a company, blah, blah, blah. We were the first venture capital fund to focus on the future of work. And in doing that, we got drawn into a number of conversations about what the effect of technology on work was going to be. And mostly, you know, I kind of had the, the tropes from public conversation in my head. Oh, there's an inequality problem or there's not an inequality problem, whatever it is. And I spent years, including one intense year doing this commission with New America, uh, trying to understand what really was the cleanest way of framing the problem. And so here's the cleanest way of framing the problem to me. To me, it's a problem of what I call economic participation, which is if you ask a person, if you follow society's game by the rules, do you have a reasonable shot of living a good life? And here I'm talking about economically, of, of mm -hmm. providing for yourself and your family. The question to me, I, so the fact that I believe is while inequality can be a problem, a huge problem in some forms, the biggest problem we have is the enormous number of people including, I actually think, probably the typical American, however you would define it, for whom the answer to that question, if I follow society's game by the rules, do I have a reasonable shot of living a good life, is no. And to me, the, the biggest question that matters in our society is, how can we make that answer yes for as many people as possible? And as you're describing 
the playing by the rules problem and also bringing in your capitalist side, when you speak with tech founders who will discuss problems of inequality, they will say that the solution is to grow the pie. It's to use technology. Oftentimes they're friendly to more libertarian ideas like the UBI, but they, but they are very positive about the idea that the type of companies that you invest in and the new business models that come from the internet are going to address a lot of that problem. And that most of the problem we're seeing of inequality are really just these legacy systems that are holding things back. How do you look at the framing I just gave you, especially given the fact that you said that there are founders who hear essentially the direction of what you're saying and aren't quite happy with it? Yeah. And look, and I'll, I'll offer just to make the picture more complex. I read the DSA. I forget what they call it. Maybe they don't call it a manifesto, you know, and it sounds pro-market to me in a lot of ways. And I read through it and I was like, hard to find for me a lot to disagree with there. And so the ideology gets complicated by tribal words like capitalist or socialist. Uh, when tech founders talk about what can improve. I think I'll try to do the most charitable version of their argument. I think the most charitable version of their argument is grow the pie means reduce costs for people. Look at the inexpensive cost and enormous access to entertainment, for example, which for sure tech has made much less expensive. Look at innovations in logistics. You know, we're an early investor in a company called Flexport that's a freight forwarder and how much cheaper it's gotten to bring goods and services to your home. And then they love pointing at bowel's cost disease and saying, look at all the places where innovation hasn't happened yet. And they point at things like housing and education and healthcare. And they say the reason those things aren't cheap yet is because there hasn't been enough technology yet. And I agree with that argument. I agree that we need more technology in housing, we need more technology in education, we need more technology in healthcare and other domains to bring costs down and quality up. I think the problem is when you start assuming that if you just do that, you'll enable people to participate economically. Mm -hmm. And my evidence is we've introduced technology to a lot of domains thus far, and it seems like the problem of economic participation is sliding backward. And there's no rule that says that if you allow semi-intervened market conditions, which is what we have now in the US. And by the way, every industrialized nation, you know, there's no such thing as a quote unquote free market or a quote unquote controlled market, because these are all just kind of settings on some huge graphic equalizer of all the various market interventions that government, which is effectively a very large corporation itself does. Um, if you look at that, there's no rule that says that the distribution of incomes and or the distribution of wealth will result in people, in the typical person or large numbers of people being able to participate economically. There's no rule that gets us that outcome. And then you throw in all kinds of structural discrimination that makes it less balanced than it seems to be. You throw in questioning of the homo economicus frame on which a lot of free market thinking depends from behavioral economics, et cetera. And you realize, okay, do you have the system you want or don't you? We've had a lot of technology for 50 years. Things have gotten better in the sense that the pie's gotten bigger, but worse in the sense of the experience of the number of people who think they participate in the economy. And so why would you bet on that changing in and of itself? That's my argument. Roy, let's focus on the part of the equation that you can control. 
Um, and in terms of what you're looking at, like you were talking about with future of work, um, this is something I'm really interested in, which is as somebody who thinks both in terms of the power of technology, but also actually increasing worker power. And I say that in terms of the actually, because we hear a lot of claims around mm -hmm. different underlying technologies. What can people who listen to our podcast look for and hope for? Um, and what are you seeing out there? So I think that it's a great question. The thing, I, I, I'm only pausing because of the word control, because I don't know that I control much of this at all. I mean, we all influence, we control our own well, action. Well, the, the, where you have more of a lane, right? So like government is one thing. Yeah, correct. Yeah. correct. Um, pretty much every communication technology that's been made available has been used to some degree by people trying to organize in one form or another for their own betterment. And today, I think what that looks like is Slack, where we were an early or kind of mid-stage investor, uh, early meaning before it was public. Um, Discord, um, where we're uninvolved. Um, those are tools that are now being used both for internal communications within an organization and for people to organize for their own betterment. And I think what we have mostly to look forward to is not the greater availability of technological tooling, although I think that will exist. You know, we invest in a company called Unit um, that will organize a union uh, in the 90% of American workplaces that American unions don't show up at mm -hmm. because they're just not resourced to do it. We invest in a company called Open Collective um, that allows people to form financial collectives where they can pool resources together. Uh, but I think most of the change we can expect is actually cultural. And I'm, that's not in my lane per se, but you know, we're involved in it. And a lot of the tech companies are symbolically increasing awareness of the possibility of workers to organize. And, uh, and so I think a lot more of what we can expect is just people saying, Hey, wait a minute, I think we need better conditions in our workplace, whatever that may mean to them it may mean wages in some places and in other places, it may mean participating in what the company does and just saying, let's communicate with each other and let's figure out how, and you know, whether they use signal to do that or Facebook to do that, Facebook's probably the single biggest organizing platform for Walmart workers. Uh, if you look at a, a nonprofit mm -hmm. like organization United for respect, they're largely on Facebook. And Roy, Sagar and I, because we basically engage with the discourse for a living, have been increasingly interested and in, have been covering the Web3 topic. Mm -hmm. You know what's coming here. Is there a difference between worker power, worker control, and ownership? Because for context, obviously, a thing that folks in the Web3 like thought leadership space basically talk a lot about is the idea that Web3 is going to be about offering people who are working on projects more ownership over the actual product they're actually building, the work they're putting in, their overall inputs. Is ownership different than power? Is different than control? Yes, they're different. They're related but they're different. So let me answer the general question and then I'll do the web three variant of it. You know, I think that there are wonderful organizations and people pushing a thing we felt in Silicon Valley for a long time, which is that everybody who works on something should get a piece of ownership in it. Now, of course, we felt that way in Silicon Valley, but it's not true in the sense that only employees are able to get 
um, ownership. And so we give stock options to them, generally speaking, but, you know, vendors don't get it. 1099s don't get it. That's largely an issue of legal framework. Um, my understanding is, for example, and I wasn't involved, that Uber wanted to give ownership to Uber drivers fairly early along the way. But ownership is only one form of power. Influence over, you could give every person who works for an organization a share of its profit, but another form of power might be influence over what that organization does. And what you see happening in tech with many of the worker organization movements that aren't unions, like the women at Amazon who organize on climate change, or the Uber folks who clamored for Travis Kalanick not to be on Trump's advisory council, is that actually what they want is influence over the direction of the organization, you know, what they call in the labor movement co-determination. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, I do think ownership helps you to have power because it gives you more economic standing. And by the way, I think that um, power without ownership can be a very dangerous thing in the sense that one of the flaws we've seen in the union movement in the United States is harming the performance of the companies where they show up. And if you harm the performance of the company where you show up, then you risk that union diminishing in stature over time because its host company diminishes in stature over time. And so I think what we really need for this to succeed, this um, greater economic participation by workers and everybody, is probably forms of labor organization that improve the performance of the companies when they show up. And that's something my partner in Bloomberg Beta, James Cham, has pointed out to me, is merely not causing harm might not be a good enough standard. And especially that's true if you're talking about international markets, um, but I think it's true in domestic markets as well. So those are some of the ways in which power and ownership are separate, uh, but related. Uh, and uh, Web3, the question that I ask about Web3 and DAOs and crypto as, by the way, an early Bitcoin holder, I've held Bitcoin since 2013. Credentials are established. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> your, your, your credentials your... are established. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. Is, well, no, but, but just to say, because I'm about to naysay. So the reason I say that is because I want to be able to explain that I'm skeptical that in the short term, anything Web3 meaningfully solves a problem for a worker. Hmm. Is it going to do something for us in the future? Could it make it easier to share ownership? Absolutely. Could it create new services where that ownership is inherently fused to the core structure of the service? Absolutely. Today, is it obvious what that's going to look like? No. Is it, and I'm, uh, you know, a, a thing that a mentor of mine once said to me that scared the crap out of me. He said, for most talented people, their personal discount rate is too low, meaning that they focus way too much on the distant future. And I've always been a person who believes in the future. And now I'm actually a little more focused on the present. And so show me the problems that those things solve now. Great. I don't, you know, I'm just not aware of that many of them. And, uh, and I believe we need that, that barriers to economic ownership and worker power are today mostly not technical barriers. They're mostly cultural barriers, legal barriers, and cultural barriers in the culture writ large, but also in the culture of management. I mean, you know, if you're a CEO and, you know, whose company starts to unionize, many CEOs, and you saw this with Howard Schultz and Starbucks, immediately feel they make this noise as if they're offended. You know, oh, but I treat you so well. Why would you organize? Well, it's like, I don't know, CEO gets paid a lot. Why would they ask to get paid more? The answer is because everybody wants to better their condition.
And this is something I always enjoy about speaking with VCs, which is the focus on, especially when you're focused on startups, solving a problem. The thing that I don't understand about Web3 discourse right now, I guess I understand it, it's just that it's too early, is what problem does a DAO actually solve for a worker? Especially when we're talking about unionization, not just white collar workers, but like actual workers who, yeah. who, are, who are doing things. And then also related is people like to use the example of, well, Web3 will mean that user users will get paid for their data. But as anyone who covers the space knows, the reason why you're not paid for your data is that you're not really paid for – your data isn't actually worth that much in the first place. So I'm curious, how would you – so let's, let's put it this way. What is the problem – in the present facing the American worker? And what is the problem facing a user of a platform, whether it's a Uber driver using the Uber platform, whether it's a person who's using Facebook, how would you define the problem in the present in both cases? It's a great question. Uh, the, the one for a worker is easier to define because it's the economic participation problem I think that I described. If I play the game by the rules, do I have a reasonable shot at providing for myself and my family? And I think that there is a lot of speculation on behalf of the Chatterati about what workers want from work. I mean, there was this year or two where every conference had a future of work track and you'd always end up with sort of, you know, rich, mostly white people talking to each other and say, what they want is meaning. And so we did some survey research on that. And what we discovered is meaning only ranks if you make $150,000 a year or more. <laughs> <laughs> what most people seem to want, they didn't quite use these words, is um, security, number one, m m people below 150 value having a stable and secure income over earning more money. And by the way, official economic data doesn't really track this stuff. You know, we tend to look at measures like GDP or GDP per capita or annual household income. There's a huge difference between I'd rather be a family on some level earning 60 grand a month on a steady basis than 80 grand a month where it arrives unpredictably in spurts, you know, one quarter of the year, because that's when all the houses get sold or something like that. And quick thing, Roy, can you yeah, explain what you mean by meaning? Because when I think of 150K a year plus, I think of a lawyer at a law firm in DC yeah. or a person who's a consultant. I wouldn't attribute either of those jobs to being particularly meaningful in their most corporate versions. Yeah. So, so what does this meaning after 150 conversation mean operationally? Yeah, I mean, I'll just tell you, I'll, I'll do my best memory of the survey question we asked. It was a few years ago now. Um, but I think what we asked was doing work that is important to me. We just tried to capture it as broadly as possible. And I do think, look, I've known a lot of people who were securities lawyers who found their work really meaningful because the craft of how they did it or you know, their explanation to themselves of the role they played in society. So I think we also tend, especially with like institutions of higher learning, to overly equate meaning with choice of occupation, that there are inherently meaningful and inherently meaningless occupations. And while I think, of course, your occupation plays an enormous role in that, you know, every teacher is on some definition doing something that is meaningful. I don't think it's the only factor and it may not even be the most important factor. Um, you know, there's the story of the three ditch diggers. You know this story? No. Three guys digging a ditch. A traveler walks by. The first one looks miserable. And he's like, what are you doing? Why are you, you know, he's like, well, I'm digging a ditch. Of course I'm unhappy. The second one looks all right. You know, he's, you know, you know, seems to be fine. He's like, why are you seem to be doing better? He's like, oh, I'm making a house. It's like, all right. The third one's just beaming. 
you know, shirt off in the sun, smiling away. He's like, why are you so happy? He's like, what do you mean? We're creating an empire. And the point is that just that your frame for how you see something can differ. Now that can also, of course, be used against people. But now to answer your question about what a platform user's problem is. So in a certain sense, it depends on which worker, but for some people it's, for many people, it's dignity and security. It's sort of the base of the, the hierarchy of work needs, if you will. I mean, I've, you know, we could talk more about what dignity means because it's a slightly different concept, I think, than meaning. Uh, for a platform participant, I think it depends on the reason they're using the platform. And to me, the question for a platform participant, whether it's an Uber driver or a Facebook user, is are they receiving the thing that they believe that they expected? And in a Facebook user's case, that might be connecting with family. Um, it might be entertainment. You know, part of the issue is different people come to it for different reasons. For an Uber driver, you know, Uber drivers talk about things like transparency about pay because they want to get paid. They want to know how things are going to work. I'm not in the position of being an Uber driver. And so I can't quite speak to that. But I think a platform is largely about this kind of implicit contract between the user and the platform. Huh. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm glad you defined the problem. Um, as it currently is. And when you're thinking future of work, obviously you have to ask the most basic question, but what we've been tracking here for a long time, how did COVID change that? You pointed yeah. to survey data from pre-COVID. So yeah. how, how are you looking and thinking about it now? We should definitely rerun the survey. Uh, first of all, I think COVID changed fewer things than we may want to admit. It may have revealed a lot of dynamics that were already present uh, around, you know, who did and who didn't have power in the workforce. Um, I do think it provoked the tight labor market, especially that's come out of COVID, has, you know, given workers more leverage in the grand uh, struggles that they engage in in various different industries, just meaning at large scale. And then, you know, I'm going to way oversimplify and say, Let's take work that can be done at a desk and work that can't. For about half of people, they could work from home, set aside what their CEO's policy was and all this stuff. For those people, I think COVID meant, number one, a lot more software. Forget about just you know the birth of Zoom and or the, the explosion of Zoom. It wasn't its birth. I think many more people just got much more familiar with software. I mean, I don't know if you've tried to ever set up like a private WhatsApp group with people who are not, you know, technically inclined in the way that yeah, you it's are. A pain. Right, it's it's a, pain. a pain. And yeah. so my guess, and I wish I had this data, but my guess is that pre-COVID, the typical office worker probably for work used one to two new pieces of software per year, sort of a median person. And that in the last two years, it's probably been more like 10 or a dozen. And you know, I think of my friend who is a medical researcher who begged to be able to sign on DocuSign and was told by the CIO, reason, 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 you know, like the peanuts, the adults and the peanuts. And then as soon as COVID hits, it's like, yeah, of course you can use DocuSign. And so I think there's just a lot more use of software. For people who do not work at desks, many of whom are classified as essential workers, and that's call it roughly about another half, the change was in some instances just physical danger, in other instances overwork, mm -hmm. in some instances uh, more power, because of, uh, and rising wages, by the way, of course, we've seen wages go up as well. And so I think it had a more 
multifaceted effect. I think those occupations are more different from each other. On some level, I always like to say, if my grandparents saw all of us working, you know, let's take the, the all of us talking on this podcast, they'd say, you guys all have the same job. You're typists. You know, you're talkers and typists. You sit there and look at a little glass box. And I think there's actually some truth to that. Uh, and so those are some of the effects that I see. But largely, you know, the inequalities got bigger. Um, you know, asset prices going up has meant that people who trade in assets like me have done very well. Uh, but more things haven't changed than have. And, I, you know, and that to me is the big effect. Something I'm wondering about, I want to go back to something you said earlier around the companies y'all have invested in that focus on collective collective action with workers. Mm -hmm. like, what do those companies actually do? Because once again, and we have to keep saying this for a while for our audience, the reason why we're personally interested in Web3 is that there's an actual like intellectual argument getting advanced here, which is that new technology or a different version of the internet could change some set of structural factors and problems we have right now. But if you're focused on this idea of organization and how do you actually bring people together, what currently are folks doing right now in those spaces, mm -hmm. in those 90% of workers you said you referenced earlier? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll zoom in on that in a second. I'll just say, I also am intellectually interested in Web3 and believe that if we confuse the value that people need in their regular lives to eat, to laugh, to love, whatever it is, to new technical platforms, it can open up possibilities. And DAOs specifically, you know, as a person who was trained as an economist, the interest to me of a DAO is that it is still pretty high fixed cost. And this will explain, I'll explain in a second why I'm answering this way, because it has to do with the company we invested in, one of the companies we invested in. It's still pretty high fixed cost to create an organization. You know, if you've tried to incorporate something, as much as tools like Stripe Atlas or LegalZoom can make it easier, it is still very hard. Yeah, and there's no, the yeah, yeah, there's no rule that says an organization has to exist for a long time. And to me, the, 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 the intellectual fascination with these tools is imagine if you had a corporation that winked out in and out of existence in a day or in less than a second and had some rules for decision making. What would that look like? What new things would emerge? I don't really know. But lowering the fixed cost to do things that are valuable but expensive is, to me, one of the great themes of media and technology. Media more seesaws back and forth because media plays for attention, which is ultimately scarce. Um, and in Web3, really what Web3's core invention is in some ways is digital scarcity. And so we'll just see what that form of digital scarcity makes plentiful, which might be organizations. And so if you wanted to create, for example, a nonprofit to collect some funds and use them to pay for some charitable cause. Super hard to do. Creating your own 501c3, you gotta file with the IRS. I've done IRS filings before for a new 501c3. It isn't pretty, it takes a long time. Yes, you can find what's called a fiscal sponsor, but then you need to have the relationships and know how to do that. You need to call somebody and talk to them. And so Open Collective on some level, which is one of the companies I mentioned, is just lowering the fixed cost of having some group of people who try to pool resources to do something together. And one of the places it started was collecting funding for open source software projects, but it's now being used by mutual aid societies, some in a 501c3 context, some in other contexts. I myself used it when I did a get out the vote um, effort 
prior to the last election where, you know, we, we collected some money and put it out. And by the way, Open Collective also offers the benefit of transparency. But if I had to do it with a fiscal sponsor, I don't even know if we would have taken any money. I mean, we were very close to just being volunteers. So that's Open Collective. Um, it's infrastructure and a platform that can be used in many different ways. Unit, which is the other company I mentioned, unitworkers.com. Unit basically says, hey, you want to unionize your workforce, but you can't get a union to help support you. Maybe you're in a right to work state where the unions tend to be less interested. Maybe you're just not very effective at finding the right person. You can go sign up at unitworkers.com and they will do the basics of the union creation process. And you know, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this, in addition to, I think, serving unmet demand, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this, in addition to serving unmet demand, is that uh, is that we have relatively less innovation in the worker organizing space than I would like to see. I think we need many new experiments here. And there are plenty of experiments, but they often happen outside the context of formal organizations. And they certainly ha often happen outside the context of unions because unions themselves are so heavily regulated that it's really hard to create a new union. I looked at some data and posted this online a few days ago that it looks like the average number of new unions created per year for the last 10 years is about 15. Yep. Imagine if I told you we only had 15 new companies created per year. You'd be like, well, of course nobody innovates. And so as a startup person, lowering the fixed cost to entering the practice of organizing workers to me is essential for innovation. And unless we have innovation, we'll get a lot of the same sclerotic results where you talk to union members. And some of them will say, I hate my own union because it's a, it makes me have to conform to the you know least common denominator. It protects my coworkers who don't work. And I think unions have done throughout history and can, can continue to do some amazing things, but not unless they innovate. It's really interesting when you're talking, Roy. I mean, I was smiling that what you said about having done this now twice, having to go on legal Zoom, Stripe Atlas or whatever, fill out all this yeah. paperwork, create a corporate. It is such a gigantic pain in the ass. I cannot even begin to describe it to people um, who haven't had to go through it. But what I what you're saying also around unions, I've I've had people on my other show, Breaking Points, specifically talking about creating and starting a new union. And it's a nightmare in terms of union certification and more. The problem is always seems to be regulatory. So can you talk about it from that yes. aspect? Because look, you can create a DAO all you want, but tax season, I gotta file with the IRS, which totally. depends on my status and depends on taxes. Same with yes. the union and the NLRB. Talk a little bit about that. Well, so yes, the problem is regulatory. And that's why I always ask, well, what would a DAO have done for the Starbucks yes. folks yes. in Buffalo? Right. Right. And the answer is a DAO does not give you a power. A union is one form of labor organization. It's a 501c5. I think I have that right. And it provides power for um, the workers to insist that the employer negotiate with their elected representative. And then therefore the main power is to come up with a contract, a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, and I'm not a lawyer, so I might get the details of that wrong, but that's roughly it. That's a yep. regulatory power, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Right. The history in the United States, and the person who taught me this really is this guy, Lewis Hyman, who's a professor at Cornell um, and a historian of capitalism, is that first the new forms appear, and then 
the legal infrastructure arrives to formalize them. Mm. And there has been great legal thinking done. You know, Ben Sachs, who's a law professor at Harvard, um, did this project uh, together with Sharon Block, who's now in the administration, called the Clean Slate Project to reimagine labor law from the ground up. I have some criticisms of labor law, and I can offer some in a second, but you're absolutely right that ultimately the answer is regulatory, but just like Uber entering markets where it was illegal and then making it de facto legal after the fact, that's the history of labor organization in the United States and maybe the history of lots of legal change. Interesting. So so let's see the action first and the law accelerate and formalize that. The law is a barrier, but it kind of, you know, you got to figure out how these things work in a system. What's interesting about the, the story you're telling around how new forms can interact with existing problems and structures is that if you listen to a lot of folks who are, and I'm not saying you're not optimistic, but your most techno-optimistic, most libertarian-minded person, they basically suggest that a, a version of what you said around um, form um, appearing and then the legal coming, to what degree do you think government regulatory inputs are going to shape a lot of these dynamics in the tech industry moving forward? Because so, to put to one more point on it, because yeah. if you follow certain people on Twitter, they are basically arguing that around the year 2015, we crossed a point of no return, especially once we are not dealing with companies like Uber that are ultimately operating in the physical plane. Wait, what's the point of no return? Oh, just just in the sense that, like, when if you, if you just, if you look at the fact that you know Silicon Valley is decentralized, you look at the fact that the internet is just moving so quickly. At the end of the day, and you see this a bit in a, a bit during the arguments over government regulation when it comes to cryptocurrency, just the the, the basically the horse is out of the barn when, yeah. it, when it is coming to the um, how fast things are moving right now. I'm not sure about that point of no return. I'll say, in the long sweep of history. Uh, I believe that the single fact, and you'll tell me if this doesn't answer your question, but I believe that the single factor that affects the betterment of people more than any other one factor, I mean, I think institutions matter a ton, nation states matter a ton, obviously, but over the long sweep of history, it really is technology because that improves standard of living. And the first venture capitalist in our modern American economy is the U.S. government because you know all the Mariana Mazzucato arguments about government's financing of R&D. And government has the longest time horizon. And so I think government policy, specifically much more and much more effective science funding, is probably the single best long-term lever that we have. And by the way, this is a bit of an aside, but um, it's worth talking to the authors of Jumpstarting America uh, because they make the case that it also is the single best way to create, you know, what they call middle class, and I'll just say, you know, livable uh, jobs by funding scientific research around the country. You look at all the so that to me is the single biggest lever for government action. But I'm not sure if that answers your question about having crossed a point of no return. Yeah, let me just re- let me just restate it, which is. Yeah. If you are a pretend you're a government regulator regulator in DC mm-hmm. right now, looking at all of the conversations that folks are having right now, looking at how COVID once again might not have changed things but accelerated things, should one feel optimistic that one has the ability to control and direct those current trends and structures in a way that was true, let's say, during the New Deal? Meaning that government, uh, you're asking me the is America governable question. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, is or is tech governable? Basically, is a way of putting it. Oh, okay. Is tech governable? I'm not sure tech has ever been governable, particularly. I mean, yes, sure. On some level, you can curb big harms, and government absolutely should. Uh, but the pace of change—it's not so much that it's fast as that it's sort of spiky and unpredictable and hard to find and dot, 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 that I, what I don't want to see is an anti-tech government. I think that's a big mistake. And I think that's where a lot of the modern antitrust starts to go. Um, but I do think we need measures uh, other than just consumer welfare, because you got companies that have lots of power over workers and suppliers and all kinds of other things that are important. Um, what I think we have not figured out and we need to figure out is how to create, and this may happen with time, so I guess I would say I'm an optimist uh, about this, is the people who understand technology, which is, you know, you can argue how important, but clearly a critically important factor in our modern world, generally do not work in government. And that was not true historically, where, you know, people who understood the major economies uh, industries of the day. And in a world where more things were moved through law, you know, the best lawyers have always kind of worked in government, at mm-hmm. least for sale. And we need to create a culture. And I've seen this happening in pockets. And by the way, I think the Obama administration started to do a great job of this. I think there are spots of it in the Biden administration of people who really understand these technologies being in the position to serve the public interest. And that, that may mean tours of duty where, you know, the secretary of some big agency is themselves a technologist. It may mean more elected officials who understand this stuff, but that's ultimately what we're going to need because otherwise all the invention power doesn't rest in public hands. Quick, Sagar, just quick follow-up on that because I want to you, – you, you said something that's very helpful that I always kind of want to push back on at the same time, Please. which is – how much of the pro if, if you actually ask the average American on the street, like what are your problems in the tech? What are your problems of technology? What are your problems of government? I don't think that most of those problems that people would verbalize would be technical in nature. So what I mean by that is if you're looking at debates over social media, if you're looking at debates over whether or not Facebook should be broken up. Is the problem technical understanding or is the pro- or is the problem that there are different values at play that one honestly doesn't need to be particularly technical to understand? So the debate with Facebook is it's about power. I'll quote Matt Stoller there. That's pretty much his tagline yeah. at this point. Um, it's about power. It's about what the public square is. Those different parts. As in, I could see FDR stepping in and seeing a certain version of Facebook, not having to know how the internet works and also making yeah. a declaration. Actually, I, I actually push back against that one. That was a bad example, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a totally fair point in that it's not only about technology, but if you want to win the cat and mouse game of, you know, regulation, response, re-regulation, not over-complexifying it, et cetera, you need to have some fundamental understanding of how these things work. And there may be technological solutions to problems of power. And so I think it's both And I think the average person test is probably not the right test in the sense that there have been plenty. I mean, did the average person, you know, post-American revolution have much of a view about what to do with the national debt and the fact of state currencies versus a national currency? Probably not. You know, so I don't think that that's the right test. I think the right Mm -hmm. test is what is the solution that actually works? 
And I think the solution that actually works is very likely to include technical wisdom or at least be immune to technical countermeasures. Necessary, but not sufficient is my answer, yeah. I guess is what I'd say. You know, one thing I really wanted to get with you, um, and this speaks to what Marshall was talking about, the decentralization of Silicon Valley, was you had a very viral Twitter thread, which I found fascinating, <laughs> around the differences between New York and Silicon Valley business culture. Um, I found it incredibly spot on as a guy in DC who has, you know, has talked, talks to and often crit critiques both. Can you outline some of those that you laid out in the thread and why it might be interesting to the layman in terms of understanding the actual products that people get or in terms of understanding the actual business and how it actually works? Sure. So having served Silicon Valley's culture for the last 15 years, I still feel real differences from the business culture in which I grew up. And I've spent some time in DC. You guys know much better than I do, but let's just call it the Excella Corridor culture, for lack of a better way of doing things. I do think it's relatively unified. And one big one is focus. In Silicon Valley, in the technology industry, there is a pride in tunnel vision, in the exclusion of all else but for optimizing the speed with which Google page times load or something like that. And, you know, the Excel corridor in some ways is defined by the liberal arts education. And that is a T-shaped education, you know, meaning a little bit of everything and one thing well. And what that means is that the kinds of solutions that tend to get in New York or C tend to be respecting the expert, but wanting to know a bunch about different things. And so as a result, leaders know you know, a New York corporate leader is much more likely to know the mayor and the cultural leaders of the city than a Silicon Valley leader. Right. And that means Silicon Valley can come up with these wildly creative breakthroughs that don't happen anywhere else, but also be oblivious to things that seem pretty obvious to folks in other places. And I believe that if we're going to get, I think we're very fortunate as a country to have Silicon Valley culture here. And by the way, it's not just in the U.S. that we have that kind of culture, but I'm just going to focus on the U.S. because it's what I know. We're fortunate because it produces amazing things, because it creates wonderful opportunity for people. And by the way, the reason I, after having made um, some professional progress in different domains, decided to stay in tech is of all the different tools for change, it's the one I personally find the most rewarding because it's the fastest to operate. And honestly, it's the most fun. And I like not all, but many of the people who are involved in it. But the answer is going to have to be, and this is a place where the realignment, you know, one of the reasons I asked Marshall about what you guys were doing is that it's going to have to be some fusion, some remixing, some consolidation of these into something new. And yeah. I feel the same way, by the way, about the capitalism versus socialism debate. More worker power is inevitable. Workers and Owners are not on different teams, ultimately. We are all sitting in the same societal boat, but what we don't have is a language for how these things come together. We have critiques of both sides, we have name calling, and it's the same thing about New York versus San Francisco. Ooh, that's interesting because I think a lot of people are with you until that very last bit about teams. Because, and this is where one being an optimist or a pessimist comes into play, which is, is that necessary? So basically, let me put it this way. We're in the same boat, but the perception seems to be that either A, there's a limited number of life rafts if necessary, mm -hmm. or B, 
we're not on the same team because even though like we're sitting in the same boat with when it's capital and labor at the end of the day, one person still benefits from the other. Um, and at least, at least that's, that's where this is the underlying thought where like non positive, sum like Marxism basically comes from. What makes you think that we are increasingly moving into a world where labor, capital owners, users, whatever working together creates a better outcome than before. Cause I think this is, I want to go back to what you were saying around how unions, the opportunities to be positive some to say we're unionized and the company itself does better. So it seems the opportunity from a remix would be you have all these different factors, but by working together, not only they're not taking from each other, but you're producing a better result. How, to, can you like speak that out a little more? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I think about this. So let me just state that this is something that I'd be open to any feedback on. And by the way, I'm looking for leaders who want to think out loud about this, CEOs who want to think differently. I, I think that um, we as human beings tend to snap to grid on tribal warfare. We like being on a team and cheering against the other side. And as a result, we so often miss the win-wins. We so often miss the opportunities where if we could just say, well, okay, I won't, my dance card won't be consistent anymore as an ideological libertarian or something like that, but maybe I'll make a better decision about something, um, then uh, we would find, now this is not answering your macroeconomic argument, which I'll get, or question, which I'll get to in a second, but that's my, my kind of emotional sense of things. And maybe this comes from, you know, being a kid of immigrants who never quite felt at home in anything. So I don't want a tribe. Like, I just want to, you know, figure out the right answer. And macroeconomically, you got to think that as we create more and more consumer surplus, as the cost of things come down, opportunity for win-wins has to grow. And as we have an economy, the single economic fact that actually scared me the most is the decline in dynamism. Because as we have an economy where inventors can get paid and think something can be made out of nothing, which happens every day in the United States, it's kind of the business model of the nation. I guess I just philosophically believe that we should exhaust the win-wins before we fight each other for the rest. Maybe it's just, I think what I'm telling you is actually, I don't know that I have an argument for why it's more possible. I have a philosophy that it's better for all of us, no matter what. Well, I guess what I'm curious about is about how that philosophy is going to manifest in government. Because Roy, if you've actually worked yeah. as you have in government before, I mean, that's oh, probably the no, least. I'll tell you a story. Yeah. Oh, go so, ahead. Yeah, go, please. No, so when I worked in city government, the federal government had given $20 billion for aid after 9-11. And it was to be allocated 10 to the city to give away and 10 to the state. Mm-hmm. And I worked for this guy, Dan Doktoroff, who is a mentor to me and who I deeply admire. And he said, why don't we think about what to do with the whole 20 billion? We'll go talk to the guys at the state about their ideas for the whole 20 billion. We'll figure out the right answer. And so we came up with some draft and we sat down with the negotiators from the state who were these sort of deeply experienced political hands. And the first thing they said was, is this coming out of your end or ours? And it was like, no, wait a minute. We thought we we're just here to figure out the best thing for the people of New York. And the guy said to me, I'll never forget it. He said to me, Roy, he like recited my resume to me. He's like, this isn't Harvard. This isn't Oxford. <laughs> this is politics. And I was like, you forgot Stuyvesant in high school, asshole. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, but it reflected a certain way of looking at things. So you're now asking me about what is the, how do you change the culture of government around that? Yes. I don't know. I mean, I can just speak yeah. for myself. 
I've given money to political candidates. I love the idea that I could fund Democrats and Republicans. I'd love for us to, I guess the answer starts with each of us, but that seems kind of hokey. Mm -hmm. And I don't have an answer on how we do it writ large, other than by showing benefits and having individual leaders. And look, here I'll humbly submit that one of the things I learned from the LP of our fund, Mike Bloomberg, is he cared a lot less about which team he was enrolled in than making good choices that tried to benefit people. And I really just believe that and just going to try to live by that. But I lack a theory of how we get there. And I'm curious what you guys think. I mean, in some sense, this is the whole thing you're doing with the realignment is maybe trying to show the way to something that feels not like column A and not like column B. So please, I mean, I'll take your advice on what do I do here? Yeah, I mean, Sagar laid it off. <laughs> I mean, that's a big one. But to be honest, Roy, I don't know if any of us have an individual agency and how it can happen just because of how big and structural the problem is in terms of the actual individuals that are working within politics and the very rational incentives that they are responding to. I always try to explain that to people. I'm like, everybody in the system is acting completely oh, rationally. Yeah. You know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene is who she is because she's all, hey, people love her. Yeah, they they love her. Uh, She's literally the number one, I think, raiser of funds within the Congress for a Republican. I mean, you know, that's actually a roadmap for a lot of people. I'll give you a little hope on that, which is it always feels that way until there's some stable equilibrium that's a different one. Right. Norms can emerge and I don't know how to get there. What I know is how to spend my days trying to live up to it. And I guess philosophically, I am a believer in individual agency um, mm-hmm. because I think unless we believe that, we might as well just pack our knives and go home. And I just don't want to do that because that's no fun. That's no, not the you way shouldn't. That's actually that's actually kind of the message that we've been giving is I'm like, look, if your hope is in government over the next 10 years, it probably shouldn't be. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot going on and you can well, get involved and, and you should with that. Or run. Yeah. Well, well, this, well, this is the inter- and this is actually a good place to, to close things on, Roy, because it, it references a tweet. I can't remember... The exact, I couldn't find this exact tweet you sent, but you basically said a tweet along, and correct me if this is incorrect directionally, but you said the ability to be positive some in the next 20 years is going to be an incredibly valued one. And do you, do you remember the exact wording? It was something like that. But I, but, but by the way, I'm gifted and cursed with a very short memory. Sometimes founders will say, hey, you gave me this advice and I took it. I'm like, great, as if you think I have any attachment to what I said to you in the past. But I, look, I, the thing that I'll say that I believe about that is we absolutely must figure out how to invent our way out of this. Because if not, the status quo, inertia always drags you down. If you're not reinventing, you're dying. And so that to me is the charge for all the listeners to this podcast. And it's why I want to find CEOs who want to reimagine labor. It's why I want to find, why I work with labor organizers who like collaborating with capitalists and think workers should do better. Like those Nixon going to China moments, those crossovers, or in Cass, you know, who you've had on before, mm-hmm. you know, those are the people who I think will help us ultimately see what the truth is because they're setting aside the tribe. Yeah. And I'll just close with this. The key thing for me is, like you said, I like the wording around inventing your way out of this. And I just believe that the reason why we should be optimistic that everything is going to end if Marjorie Taylor Greens is that people are exhausted. They're exhausted by the labels. Yes, you get short-term clicks by being performative in that way, but no one no one likes Marjorie Taylor Greene. No one likes Madison Cawthorn. Um, pick your you know analog on the Democratic, Democratic side. And I think 
in 10 years, the problems we face are just going to be so serious that it, that our system will select for people who take this approach. So what we're basically trying to do here is build the catalog of thoughts and ideas and figures that people could pull off. I guess pull off the I shelf love is that. the wrong metaphor, but that's, yep. I'm, I'm basically stealing from you all while Levin. Well, hold on, he, let me just give yeah. you, I'll give you, I'll give you another way of looking at that is that the tribalism we've had might just be the function of a society that for elites at least was quite prosperous for a long time. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the Chatterati are terrified that unless they take a different kind of action, we'll have a worse world. You know, when they're terrified, that's when we respond. And so I'm terrified. And one of my main messages when I go speak with my colleagues in the business world is we have a serious problem here. And you'd be shocked how many people don't believe that. But if we believe that, then we'll take action. And I'm that's grateful for one. you guys creating this catalog because I hope that leaders draw from it for years and years to come. Thank you, Roy. It means a lot. I, I think... Uh, it was Disraeli um, in the UK context who actually forged and pr- actually acted on exactly that model of change, which was going towards the aristocracy and saying, listen, there's a groundswell in the country. You can act with it or we can go and end up with social movements that ended up looking like you know, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. And that's why that Britain survived on the, you know, <laughs> throughout throughout the ages. So You can't fight you know? City Hall. I mean, you can fight yeah. City Hall, but you can't fight the forces of change. And I do think power for people is a force of weather that we shouldn't fight. Very well said. Roy, we really appreciate talking to you. Um, I uh, appreciate everybody to go follow you on Twitter. One of the more thoughtful people working in the industry. And I think you've given us a lot of knowledge and stuff to think about. So thank you. Kind of you. Kind of you guys. Thanks, Marshall. Thank you, too. Thank you. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases. And of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.